0: podcast from Aberdeen Investment Trusts. Hello and welcome to today's podcast on the Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust. I'm Cherry Reynard, and with me today is Trust Manager Ben Ritchie. So welcome Ben. Um, let's start if we can with an existential question. So people keep saying the UK is cheap, earnings are strong, UK companies are sound, but sentiment is still really poor. I'm wondering what could turn the tide on that.
1: It's a great question, um, and it's something which I think UK investors have been wrestling with uh, for a, some considerable period of time. The discount at which UK assets are trading, particularly to the US, is as substantial as it pretty much ever has been. Uh, but I do think that it's important. I think to look on a sort of stock by stock basis. I'm always a little bit wary of the overall market evaluations, because there are different sectors, there are different weightings, and and fundamentally there are are different companies. And I do think that when you look at the UK market in a more granular sense, the valuations of some of the assets are indeed cheap, but they're not necessarily cheaper than, say, their European counterparts, but they are cheaper than their US counterparts. And I think that reflects, I think, A, more positive sentiment towards the US from global investors and particularly US investors, and and secondly, you know, generally, I think a more cautious view on the outlook for Europe and the UK uh, as well at the same time. And you've kind of got that dynamic. But I think in terms of the tide, I mean, if you look at the returns, total returns, I think from UK equities through 22 and 23 have actually been, I think, some of the best available uh, in the world, uh, and that does tend to be the case that UK equities in 22 at a time when global equities were down quite sharply, actually performed uh, in aggregate pretty well. And I think that was because they were coming from a, a relatively low valuation base and meant that they weren't subject to the, the de-rating that we saw uh, across large parts of, of equities during the year. So I think one of the sort of benefit, I guess, of a, of a lowly valuation is actually that that should drive higher implied returns. and And I think we have seen that uh, to some degree. So I don't spend a huge amount of time worrying about the rating that the UK markets are. I spend time looking at the individual ratings that the stocks are on. As an investor, you want those to be as low as they possibly can be when you invest and as high as possible when you decide to sell. So so fundamentally, I don't see low valuations as a problem. I mean, if anything, it's, a, it's an opportunity. But it, it, it's one of those things where investors continue to sort of fret about that that relative rating but I think from an opportunity perspective you know I think it's still it's still a, you know a positive for people looking to put money to work.
0: One bit of good news this month was on inflation I mean how are you feeling about that are you kind of reserving judgment to see a more prolonged downward trend or, or are you encouraged by that?
1: Well I think it's been taken positively by markets we've seen bond yields a little bit. We've seen sentiment shift a little bit towards domestic UK assets, which has been helpful. And and certainly we've got stock level, you know, quite a bit of exposure to domestically focused companies. So that's undoubtedly, you know, pretty helpful. Um, But I think you, I think we just have to see how it evolves. Generally speaking, people have underestimated the strength of, of UK inflation. I suppose in many ways they've underestimated the strength of inflation globally so let's just wait and see how it evolves. Uh, but it, it is something that could be a, a helpful tailwind, I think, for sentiment and um, percentage of valuations, you know, if we continue to see that trend coming through over the second half. But as I say, you know, I think inflation is one of those things that people don't really understand, and I wouldn't claim to be a, a great expert in it. Uh, and I think we just sort of, to some extent, see how it, it, it evolves. In My sort of fairly simplistic way of thinking about it is that the UK when I look across the world, it has an unfortunate combination of elements which has made it more vulnerable to higher inflation. It's, it had a very tight labour market. It's had a reasonable degree of fiscal stimulus during COVID. It's also had you know, very loose monetary policy for a considerable period of time. It's also then had exposure to the energy crisis, which has been caused by Ukraine And on top of that, then you probably had some also had some dislocations and complexities around Brexit. And when you put that combination together, it's meant that CPI and core inflation have ended up being quite a bit higher. Now, whether or not they stay at that elevated level, I think we'll just have to see. Certainly, the peak has been higher, and it's, it's been a little later to start to fall compared to other places in Europe. But if you do look at some of the leading indicators, like PPI, which is going into manufacturer of goods and, and, and so forth. And if you look at what's happened to gas prices, which will eventually feed through both for consumers and businesses, then you know these things have been moving in the, in the right direction. So let's see. Um, but I think, you know, as you suggested, Cherry, it's an encouraging sign. Let's hope uh, that it does move in the right direction. And if it does, then that's probably likely to be quite positive for that sort of mid uh, part of the market, particularly that which is exposed to the, the UK.
0: Now, I mean, another problem for the UK market is a sort of perception that it's it's only about certain industries and certain sectors and maybe doesn't have access to some of these structural growth themes like green energy or digitization or that sort of thing. I mean, my, my impression is that you you can actually get access to all those themes in a UK portfolio. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so I think I think it's to some degree a fair observation. I think when you look at the makeup of the UK market, it's not overly endowed with companies in the technology space or in the in the, the green environment space per se. I think that's that's not an unreasonable initial observation. But, but I think that then means that you know if if you think that those areas are attractive, uh, then you're just going to have to work a little bit harder to get exposure to those things. One of the advantages that Digit has is that it is able to invest up to 25% of its capital overseas, which does give us quite a bit of flexibility to go find companies that do have more exposure to those areas, so that's pretty helpful. And the other element I think that Digit has going for it is that we're very much sort of all cap in terms of our approach, so we can look across the whole market, which again gives us more flexibility. And so when we're thinking about those, those sorts of themes, and access to them, you know, we are able to find exposure to uh, the sort of environmental shifts which we're seeing. Companies such as SSE, a very big generator of renewable energy, a big pipeline of future wind power that will come through as well uh, that should drive you know, good growth over the longer term. Uh, something like national grid, again, in terms of the electrification of the economy, and it's a big part of what it delivers both in the UK uh, and in, in the US. And when we look to things like uh, in the technology space, you know, we are able to access companies from overseas, such as ASML, which is the global leader in in lithography and uh, which effectively supplies and helps the manufacture of microchips that ultimately power the global economy. But close to the home, you've also got companies such as Sage, which, again, you know, I think perhaps an underestimated company, but a business that has transitioned towards the cloud in terms of its provision of accounting software for SME businesses and again I think a you know, sort of a, a quiet developer in terms of its its expand, expansion into the technology space. But further down the market cap, you know, we're also able to find companies you know, such as SoftCat, which effectively is a, a provider of IT equipment, software and hardware for smaller companies across across the UK. Again, that's a business which benefits indirectly from that digitization dynamic. So I think that combination of looking overseas and looking down. Uh, The market cap give us the flexibility to be able to find good exposure to some of those big long term themes that are out there in the market, which we think will, you know, power growth uh, for the portfolio over the long term.
0: Could we sort of zero in on the portfolio now and just talk about any kind of recent changes you've made?
1: So we we've added to a couple of companies um, during the period. We've increased our positions in LSE as a stock which we very much like. Again, we're talking about those thematics. It's really become a data business. It's it's, a, it's taking advantage of its financial market infrastructure to, to generate data which it then sells to its own customers. And that, that has been a big shift for the business, uh, certainly from when I started. And it, it really made its money through trading activity on the exchange and listing fees and was quite a market-sensitive business. And today, You know, it it really has very little of that in terms of its revenue drivers. So we've increased our position there quite significantly as well. We've also been buying more in recent months of a company called Sirius Real Estate, which owns uh, small industrial units, primarily in Germany, but also now in the UK. Again, we think that's a business that's well positioned for, for, for structural growth. The area experiencing high levels of demand, relatively constrained supply, And I think also, perhaps importantly, not seeing some of the bond yield pressures in Germany that it has done in in other markets. So, again, quite an interesting uh, opportunity to be adding to that as well. Um, And we also initiated uh, over the last couple of months in Softcap, the company that I I mentioned earlier, again, a business which uh, we think is well positioned for the long term in terms of supplying software and hardware primarily into The SME market in the UK, um, I think that that ability to meet needs, design bespoke solutions for companies, that's only going to be a a growing area over the longer term. It will be a little bit, a little bit cyclical, uh, but we think the long term demand there is also quite attractive, very strong balance sheet and the potential to generate excess dividends back to investors also also looks pretty good to us. So, you know, a number of additions to the portfolio, uh, which we think, you know, fit those ideas of looking for kind of good long term. Uh, structural growth and hopefully also businesses that have the capacity to generate healthy levels of cash flow and pay it back to us. I mean, SoftGat and LSE don't have high dividends, but we would have confidence that we'll see very good levels of growth from those dividends. Sirius uh, offering actually a combination of a decent yield, around 5, 5.5%, five but also uh, growing that quite attractively as well. So those have been the things that we've been looking at uh, over, the, over the recent times.
0: Unilever had another strong set of results just recently, and I know that's a, a important holding in the trust, and it, it seems to have shown really strong pricing power to date. I wonder if you think that pricing power can be sustained as the impact of higher interest rates comes through and sort of impacts on households.
1: I think pricing power is an interesting is an interesting dynamic. So I would say the pricing lever is something that companies had not particularly exercised uh, up until the sort of inflationary pressures that we started to see coming through from or covid and all the factors that you mentioned earlier i mean i think initially you know unilever did suffer some margin pressures and i would say in the categories that it operates in you know some of them are, are more difficult to get full pricing back as well uh, but overall, I think as time has gone on, they've been able to do a pretty good job in terms of, of maintaining margins. And, and pricing has also helped to move the top line ahead. And we're probably through the worst in terms of the inflationary input cost pressures that they're going to face. And so I think that the key thing from here is, you know, retention of pricing, maybe a little bit of additional element. But it's also then being in a position to benefit from falling input costs that can allow your margins to re-expand. And so, to some extent, it, the game from here probably won't be necessarily about putting up prices, but it will be about maintaining price levels. Uh, and I suspect that also means that then they're going to have to work quite hard on their cost base as well uh, to make sure that they put themselves uh, in that position to be able to do that. And I think you know the pricing thing will also be something that. You know, I think will companies will consider more, having been through a period of exercising the price lever uh, in the future than they did in the past. So I think it may become a little bit more of a, of a weapon. And, and the other side to it then, I think, is there will become, uh, I think, more of a polarised element to it, where not all companies will necessarily be able to deliver on that. And I think when everybody is raising prices and inflationary levels are very high, it's relatively straightforward for all companies to put prices up. But when that tailwind starts to fade, then I think it will become more sort of stock specific as to who actually genuinely does have the capacity to nudge their prices ahead every year. And it might be that there are spaces perhaps in the more, I guess, higher price level and perhaps the the more unique and stronger brands where pricing may become more part of the mix. And Unilever will have bits of their portfolio that fall into that, although it certainly won't be the whole thing. So I think overall, I think they've done a a decent job in terms of navigating what's been tough markets. We've got a a new CEO coming in there, so it'll be interesting to see how that comes through. Uh, And I think the one area that's going to be really interesting is going to be on on their emerging market footprint, because that clearly has always been a a big differentiator for Unilever from some of its competitors. That's not necessarily always been a, a positive over recent years. And so access to the faster growing markets like India, Indonesia, their position across Latin America, those may perhaps be markets where we're actually going to continue to see some good volume growth in a world where that may look a little bit scarcer. And so it's also going to be interesting to see how Unilever do in that area. But we would say that's potentially an underappreciated angle for them. And, and as a result, you know, it continues to be a you know a big holding for us in the trust.
0: Now, just finally, the Investment Association reported that flows are continuing to come out of UK equities. I'm just wondering if on the close-ended side, whether you've seen that sort of reflected in the discount and whether you've had to take steps to address that at all?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of elements here. I think, first of all, you know, you're continuing to see allocation away from UK equities in the broader marketplace. And I think that's simply a reflection of the fact that the the UK in global benchmarks is a relatively small percentage, and uh, domestic investors probably still significantly overweight to to UK equities. So I think there is that sort of natural selling element that that has come into play. I don't know whether that will change over time. Uh, We've seen some noises from government about encouraging pension schemes to take more risk, but I think that largely has been around private market assets as opposed to public market assets. So let's see. Uh, I think the discounts for investment trusts, and we have seen a bit of a widening, both of digits discount and I think in the wider sector, uh, I think the element there is probably more to do with interest rates and alternative opportunities for investors than it is to do per se with the appetite for UK equities. And I think when you can get 5% on cash, a 4.5% dividend yield is less appealing than, you know, two years ago where cash rates were zero, a 4.5% dividend yield looks, looks pretty appealing. And I think this is an important thing. I and mean, we've been discussing this with the board in terms of how do we position the trust strategically for the long term, uh, because actually there's more competition uh, in terms of the provision of simply a dividend yield of four to five percent. And so we're going to have to work harder to offer our investors a more compelling offer than simply saying, well, we've got a big dividend yield and it's a big premium to cash and a premium to the FTSE. So there's going to need to be more angles and offer for Digit going forward to attract investors to our capital base. But that's something that we've been working on over the last couple of years. So it's not something that's a new element. And that's driven um, decisions such as the adoption of the sustainability overlay, which, again, you know, is a unique thing for Digit, not only in the UK equity income space, but pretty much uh, across the entire uh, UK closed-ended space, where there are very few companies that have firm, sustainable commitments and, and exclusions, which, again, you know, we think is helpful for Digit in terms of standing out from the crowd. Uh, it's also driven our decision to expand our overseas Exposure. So we, we increased the capacity to do that from 20 to 25% this year. Uh, and we will continue to look at ways that not only can differentiate digit, but which can also enhance the overall return prospects for our investors. You know, whether that's uh, looking at, at how we distribute income back to investors and looking at ways in which we can deliver superior investment performance. Because the one thing that the investment trust can do that cash can't is grow. Our dividend distributions have the capacity to grow. They have grown or been maintained every year for the last 42 years. And that's something that you won't get from your cash in the bank. And so, that element of some inflation protection that you can get from owning real assets, which Digit does in the form of equities, is also quite important. And I think we're going to have to work harder on explaining the benefits that investors can get both from a growing dividend from Digit and the capital returns the total returns that the investors can get from owning the stock, Uh, because at the end of the day, the dividend yield and comparing it to cash is just one half of the story for digit. We'd expect there to also be a healthy capital return element to the total return picture, Uh, whereas just simply owning cash or owning a bond maturity, well, the return you get is the return on the labour at the start, but it ain't going to be any more than that. And that, uh, I think, is an important point of difference, which we need to work hard on if we're going to get that uh, discount tightened and perhaps get the trust back to the premium that it was on not that long ago.
0: Thank you so much Ben for all those insights today. You can find out more about the trust at dunedinincomegrowth.co.uk and thank you all so much for tuning in.